Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock, and today I am speaking to Professor Vincent Giloso of George Mason University. And we discuss a recent paper of Vincent and his co-authors on income inequality in the United States. Hello, Professor Vincent Galoso. Hello, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for being here. Vincent, together with uh, Philip Magnus, John Moore, and Philip Schlosser, you recently published a paper in uh, The Economic Journal entitled, How Pronounced is the U-Curve? Revisiting Income Inequality in the United States uh, from 1917 to 1960. Uh, Vincent, what is the U-Curve? So the U-curve is related to a stylized fact that has emerged in, in economics and economic history with the idea that starting from a relatively high level in the early 20th century, uh, income inequality leveled down, essentially, mm -hmm. so that there was a, a trend towards equality that fell really fast, especially around World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, and the tax changes that occurred in World War II. So for those who are thinking the tax changes would have been stuff like high marginal tax rates, uh, withholding high enforcement by the IRS, uh, moving into the 1950s and 60s, low levels of inequality, and eventually starting with reforms in the 1980s to uh, tax codes, to economic deregulation, there was an increase in inequality that brought it back to mm -hmm. the level of the 19, say, 1920s. So that's the narrative of the U-curve. Starts high, goes low, goes back up high. And the pattern is explained according to the narrative that's generally associated with them, but it's not necessary to associate the two together. The U-curve shape is due to big tax changes uh, over time. Right, but also um, just general policy changes associated with the New Deal in the U.S., right? So yeah, um, more stringent enforcement of antitrust and, and, and such. Uh, not really. So what hmm. people will put a lot of emphasis on will be mostly on the tax rates. Uh, that's where most of the action is. And how these tax rates in turn can be used to redistribute. So that high tax rate to fund generous uh, welfare programs uh, allowed the, the U-curve to, to emanate. And that actually is what we question uh, overall, me and my co-author. We're not that convinced of two aspects of this story is how pronounced is the curve itself. We're not convinced that is it is as pronounced as people make it out to be. Uh, but more importantly, the timing of, of changes has a very, offers a, getting the timing correct is what I should say, uh, gives a very different narrative of uh, what caused the leveling and what caused the the increase since the 1980s. Interesting. So what is the current state of the, um, let's call it academic conversation about inequality? Because I mean, you're clearly responding here to yep. a literature um, 
maybe most familiar to listeners will be uh, the work of uh, Piketty and Saez. So if you could just give us a rough overview over what, that, what, the, what stage this conversation is currently at. So Piketty and Saez were, in a way, building on the shoulders of giants like Simon Kuznets, who had won the Nobel Prize in economics, notably for some of his work on measuring inequality and others like Peter Linder and Jeffrey Williamson, but what Emmanuel Saez and Thomas Piketty, uh, well known for capital in the 21st century, the latter of the two, Piketty, uh, very well known as basically the equivalent of a media star, is a bit <laughs> the French world's Paul Krugman, for those who are looking for an analogy, mm -hmm. uh, very high in demand for media interviews, is talks really well in the media, is very well organized in his thoughts, uh, and uh, got to that level of popularity by being the guy who pioneered a way to extend measurements of inequality, but more precisely, the share of total income that goes to X or Y group. And that means like X would be like the top 10%, the top 5%, the top mm -hmm. 1%. And they've pioneered ways to, to estimate this. And they're the one who, even though we knew for a long time that there had, there was a U-shape, they were the first to actually put numbers on it. Not gotcha. just that we conceptually understood that there was a U-curve, that it had gone down since the beginning mm -hmm. of the century, and it had gone up since the 1970s or 80s. Uh, uh, they actually did put a number on that. That's the, that's the state of the conversation that they uh, advanced. But ever since, for the last, say, 10 years, there's been a lot of pushback. Hmm. Uh, against them, uh, but mostly for what happened since the 1970s. A lot of people think their numbers have uh, methodological problems in them, the way they're calculated, and uh, how it doesn't match with other economic facts. So, for example, uh, normally, so people think it's just like a war of numbers. It's not. Normally, you expect certain things to move together for it to be internally consistent. Uh, and a lot of people have found that no, that is not the case. So their errors must have been made somewhere. There is problems like, um, for example, when uh, the United States in the 1980s reduced personal income tax rate, a lot of people who uh, were using business benefits, so like a company car, as, as a form of income, even though it wasn't tax declared, uh, when personal income tax rate were changed, people started shifting what was business expenses, sorry, income masquerading as business expenses then actually became income, right. even though it wasn't an actual change in income inequality. It was just a change in accounting that has no economic meaning whatsoever. So people have made changes to that. And uh, everyone is pretty much in agreement that uh, Piketty and Saez overstated the increase in inequality since the 1970s maybe by say the rate they find every year of increase is half of it on hmm. average. So it's like cut by half, but also there has been no increase. If you believe like the, the one that actually gets the, the most cited of their criticism, there has been no increase since the, the late, the, the, the early 1990s. So it's been a flat line uh, pretty much since, even though there's like some variation from year to year, there is no long-term trend since the 1990s. So they've been, but even though it's back, it's up from the low level of the 60s and 70s. So that's for sure. We're in agreement that today there is a higher level than 60s and 70s. We're just 
there's just massive disagreement about how big is the, the difference since the 60s and 70s and what are the causes of this. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, listeners might ask themselves, okay, why is it important to get it perfectly right? If we know what the trend is, isn't that enough? No, but, not <laughs> enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously this is not just an academic exercise, right? I think um, if you want to try to understand, well, you know, like we have this general phenomena that we're um, observing, um, you really want to get it exactly right because that's in the timing is important, right? And to be able to identify what exactly are the connections to be then, if you want to do something about it, that, that would be the first step to, to try to figure out what is actually going on, which should then inform your policy response. Yes. So even if you're, say, your run-of-the-mill person who's uh, concerned about inequality and you just think that there's a sweet number to hit, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of the, what that number actually is, uh, actually understanding what you're measuring properly is, is going to be relevant. And the fact that there's stuff that's just accounting identities is going to be, to be irrelevant in terms of how much you have to level. So just getting the numbers right in and of itself is important to to guide policy, but also, and that's more important, is I've been arguing for years that there's such a thing as good inequality, there's such a thing as bad inequality, there's such a thing as inequalities that are morally neutral, that they have no implication. And uh, to elaborate a bit on this, the what you would call good inequality is uh, stuff that is actually the result of choices. So an example I give to my students when I teach labor econ, uh, imagine a Benedictine monk and a hedge fund banker. The hedge fund banker makes a thousand times more than the monk and his income goes up faster than the monk. That the society composed of the monk and the banker is going to be unequal, very unequal, but also increasingly unequal over time. But if you were to offer the monk the income of the banker and that there's nothing preventing him from taking the banker's job or being a banker himself, then yes, there would be a difference in income, but it is not a difference in well-being. So there are inequalities that uh, we're just that are going to maybe appear if we're in very rich societies where there are non-material ways to be immensely happy and fulfilled. It is entirely possible for that to happen. That is actually a good form uh, of inequality. If you have very different people with very heterogeneous preferences. Uh, it would be normal to see some rising inequality, especially in rich society, as some people are just less materially ambitious. Now, there is morally neutral inequality, like aging. Uh, So this creates, for example, population aging uh, creates biases because you're not comparing the same people over time. Older people tend to have higher stocks of wealth, higher incomes than younger people. Uh, And not only that, younger people now enter the labor force much later than they did before. So because of changing demographic, you're getting a skew in your measurement uh, Mm -hmm. because you're not comparing the same demographic structures. We know that sometimes just for keeping age structure constant, you can knock off a a sizable chunk of the level of inequality measure, but also uh, attenuate the increase that's, that's observed. Uh, That's like neutral inequality. There's no, there's nothing bad. Actually it is, it's unpleasant to age, uh, but there's nothing morally bad with, with aging. But there are such things as morally contemptuous, morally contemptible inequalities. And these would be stuff that either is the result of policy that limits the chances of the poor to, to rise up, 
or protect the rich from competition from other people. And so they're privileged in some legal way, mm-hmm. in ways that others are not, or uh, that uh, by dint of birth, you are privileged with a greater set of choices just because you're born in a rich uh, family or you're stuck in, in the plight that your parents had and you cannot escape. Uh, your parents' socioeconomic condition. These are the two types of bad inequality. If we have that lens that I've mentioned of the different types of inequality, reinterpreting the timing of the changes in equality, getting the measurement right, can Mm -hmm. actually lead you to box things very differently. So, for example, when uh, I argue, uh, so for example, like before we move on to our stuff, which is pre-1960, so we we revisited Mm -hmm. the left part of the U-curve, but for the right part of the U-curve, here's a good example. Uh, Since the 1970s, there has been in the United States a greater number of immigrants that have entered the U.S., and we know that on average, immigrants have a uh, wage penalty because they're unfamiliar with, with the host country, and so on average, they earn less than the natives, all else being equal. Uh, but the reality, and so that the result, because if you're if you're having a, a larger and larger share of the population that is foreign born that suffers that penalty, you're going to look like you're going to have rising inequality. But in reality, the minute I allow a Haitian or a Nigerian to come to the United States, uh, his income has increased tenfold. Right. So it looks like it's increased in the United States, but here actually, if you think about it for five seconds, it's actually gone down worldwide because we've allowed a person from a poor country without changing any of his characteristics to move to a rich country. And just because he's matched with better institutions, better capital, more capitals, uh, secure property rights, magically for some reason, all the skills he had before are now 10 times more productive. Uh, that is a form of leveling. It looks like in the United States, there is more inequality, but in that case, that's actually a good inequality in a weird way. So, uh, but understanding these changes, what is moral, what is not moral, what we can, and not only that, but the categories I've drawn tend to be widely agreed upon for left and right. A uh, few people disagree uh, on these on these different boxes. So the, the point is when you box, when you understand the, the changes properly and the timing of things and how it relates to other economic changes, you can actually when I keep saying box things properly is you can put part of the increase in inequality since the 1970s to a great positive development which we is we've allowed millions of people to escape poor countries come to the U.S. and become immensely richer even though in the U.S. it looks like we have rising inequality in the end it actually means that globally there is a, a rising level standard especially for those we care about most those at the very bottom. Yeah absolutely I think um that's actually very well put. Um, and uh, I suppose I tend to think it more from a policy perspective, but um, the way that you speak about it is very eloquent. That being said, right, I mean, just very simply, you know, unless we get the measurement right, we have, we, we might tragically conclude that the machine is broken, or something's wrong, right? Because typically people um, look at inequality and um, say, well, okay, this is evidence of, you know, either non-competitive markets in some way or some sort of uh, legal pathology as you're describing. So we need to fix it, which would obviously be somewhat tragic if in fact um, that's not the case at all, right? As you say, like it's conceivable at least that um, parts of the inequality story are due to uh, things that are actually positive, right? So in some sense, yeah. it might actually be a success story here. That is somewhat hidden. That being said, 
I think I don't want to be too sanguine about very real pathologies in the US um, economy across the board. But that being said, um, let's turn to uh, your investigation of, as you say, the left part of the U-curve, meaning, um, just to remind everyone, the period between 1917 and 1960. So I have two questions. Um, one, you spoke about measurement. How do you go about measuring economic inequality in that time period? Um, yeah, let's maybe start there. Okay, so generally, there's two methods people have heard of, if they're familiar at all with the topic. One of them is called the Gini coefficient. Mm -hmm. And this is an idea of how distributed income is. Mm -hmm. That is very hard to calculate the further back you go in time. You need very detailed information to do so. If you go back in time, generally, especially like early 20th century, you have to switch to the other measure, which is conceptually easier to measure. And it's generally because we have more information about the people, how to measure this, and it's the top income shares. Mm -hmm. So that means that we have information about who the very richest are. And because we know who the very richest are, we can... Uh, take the sum of their income and divide that by the share of by over total income in society. And we will say the richest 10% of the richest 1% of the richest half of a percent uh, have or captured. That's the word for sometimes that sometimes in literature, I dislike the word captured. It sounds like as if there's no wealth created in the process, there's no exchange as if like it was a tug of war. It's not, it's much more richer and complicated than that, but we will say something along the lines of the top 10% got 25% of the income, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. the top 1% got 10 times as much as their demographic share. Uh, right. That's the idea. That's generally how it's, it's, it's measured uh, the further back you go in time. And that is the, the series that Piketty and says, and before them, Simon Kuznets, Peter Lindert, and Jeffrey Williamson, but also people like people no one will have heard about, like Lee Salto or, uh, or uh, Gene Smiley, who made some of these estimations earlier on. They had taken what is essentially the top richest people in society, how much of total income or wealth sometimes, we can concentrate on income, but how much of income or wealth did they capture as a whole for society? Uh, that's the measure that's generally gone about. And generally we do so through tax records because right. tax agencies tend to have the data necessary to at least compile the very richest. Is there anything that you would obviously miss by uh, looking at tax records? Uh, I don't think there's something you would obviously miss. It's something you would contextually miss. Mm -hmm. So for example, some tax agencies were very aggressive on enforcement. Uh, if so, then income is going to be much more accurately reported. But for example, in the United States, enforcement before the 1940s was a big issue. There were numerous uh, strange exceptions. One of them, for example, was non-trivial. It affected 4% of the workforce. Uh, state and local employees did not have until 1939 to file for federal taxes. Uh, they were hired by a school board, for example, or say the government of Louisiana, uh, they would not have to file federal taxes. And these were, I think, 4% of the workforce, not trivial. Uh, as a number, you had exceptions like these. You also had uh, low enforcement because income was self-reported. There was no withholding 
uh, as we do today, where you can see what's taken off of your paycheck or at the end of the year, what's been withheld from you uh, to pay the government. Uh, prior to the 1940s, this was not the case. There was no withholding. So you had to entirely rely on people's honest reporting of their income. Right. Uh, so this was a problem before then. So there's nothing that's automatically bad. It's going to depend on the context in which the data is is generated, and then you put the not the notes of caution. And there's good reason to be very cautious with IRS data, but uh, uh, there's very little way to arrive at a safe understanding of how big the avoidance problem pre 1960 uh, was. There's some weird ways to get a rough idea, but it's it's hard to get a pinpoint a number on that. Okay. So what is special then about 1917 or the years afterwards? What changes that would potentially reduce inequality afterwards? Okay, so what we did in the paper, and it's worth explaining and before I answer this, is we revisited, uh, there was a series of methodological problems that was present in the work of Piketty and Says, notably the fact that the IRS, for some reason, that still eludes us uh, before the 1940s when it reported the data, it reported income after deductions had been accounted for. So that meant that we what we had was next tax, it was, they were only reporting tax liabilities. They were not reporting uh, uh, essentially uh, the market income of people, which is right. what we should want. We want to know how much people earned before redistribution. So that was one big issue. And uh, Piketty and Sayes had done uh, some uh, arbitrary rule to make the adjustment, uh, which uh, was a bit lazy, to be honest, uh, or unfamiliarity with the source material, because in the same IRS stuff, there was enough data about the deductions that we could recreate the actual market income. It took us some time, but mm -hmm. we were able to recreate this. Uh, there were also problems in the way total income was estimated because we needed to make things consistent. The income that's reported on tax record has to be consistent with the income that we're dividing it over right. to get the total income share. So we needed to remove stuff like, for example, when income is calculated in the United States, which is called personal income, there's, for example, something called imputed rent, which is the market value of your housing, which is worth something. But if you own your house, you're not, well, you're not paying rent. Mm -hmm. And it's not like a market income per se. So we had to, and it's not taxable, the value of services your house provides uh, if you're a homeowner. So we had to remove stuff like that from this. We also had to remove transfers uh, from, uh, from the deductions, like veterans pensions, stuff like that. So we had to harmonize. And what we did is we used uh, very high quality government reports to make sure we created the perfect income denominator and what we ended up finding, and this is going to speak to your question, sorry for the long parent no, pieces, please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is that we found that the level overhaul that Piketty and Saez found was, uh, say for the richest 10%, was 15% uh, small. So that means that, say, for example, that the level of income inequality, the, the, the amount of income that the richest 10% got was, was 40%. Uh, we found that actually it was closer to 
33 or 32, something like this. So it was a sizable reduction in the overall level of inequality, but most importantly, the timing changes. In their story, oh. World War II is the big change. And they, it's not because the war does something in of itself through destruction or, or death. It's through the fact that the state increases marginal tax rates mm -hmm. to unprecedented levels. Uh, there had been high levels before, but not as high as those that emerged in World War II. There's a lowering of the base exemption that people paid. There is, so basically everyone gets into the tax system, the taxes on the rich are increased. Withholding is introduced in 1943. Uh, there is much more enforcement efforts that are deployed. And so that means that uh, that's the emphasis that they put. And what we find actually is that the war doesn't cause that big of a change. Actually, the part that we find is that half of the leveling you observe from peak to trowel, so the trowel of the 1950s and 60s is actually explained by the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. uh, and mostly actually in changes from 1929 to 1933. And notice when I said there are, there'd be bad equalities, there could be like bad inequality, there was mm -hmm. bad equality. Uh, 1929 to 1933 is a period where the rich actually got poor faster than the poor, but the poor did also get poor. Right. If okay. everyone's getting poor and you're getting that there's a leveling, whereas the very rich are actually seeing their living standards falls fast, well, I'm sorry, I find very little to be enthusiastic about. That is mm -hmm. actually a bad form of equality. If there's an inequality where at least one person gets up and the other one doesn't, but isn't made worse off, well, at least that's morally better than one where everybody gets worse off. Mm -hmm. uh, so just that changes the interpretation of the leveling. Most of the leveling, nearly half, is because of the depression uh, and mostly the eradication of capital gains from 1929 to 1933 before uh, any substantial tax hikes are done on the very richest. Uh, and it's highly depressing as a fact, but it also causes a very different interpretation. It actually cuts, uh, whereas the Piketty and Size story and that that was told by many would put nearly all of the story on, on tax changes are our improvements to the measurements because we're just getting more precise measurements tells us that we have at least to cut that weight in half right so that the, the the tax policy is at least half as efficient as they say because the other changes happen without any changes to tax policy and in a highly depressing setting and no pun intended because it is the great depression yeah. it was a fun but whatever yeah uh so could you uh, elaborate slightly on um the causes um of the reduction in um returns to very high incomes at the time or what was it then that you find more persuasive in explaining the reduction in inequality at the time uh the great depression the the the, the crash of 1929 did wipe out a lot of capital gains that people had in the united states and a lot of stock market wealth and mm -hmm. that tended to be the composition of most of the assets and income derived from these assets by the very rich. Right. So, uh, and we actually had a separate paper that got published in an economic inquiry, which is called the great overestimation uh, published 2020, if I'm not mistaken, me and Phil Magnus, one of my co-authors on the present paper, we actually had some state level data from state income taxes that were much higher quality 
than those of the IRS because they had very active and aggressive enforcement uh, and very much fewer problems. And what we found essentially for, for that period is that the vast majority of it was actually purely explained by the wiping out of, of capital gains. And that was it, highly depressing, but that was it. Capital hmm. gains being banished uh, in the depression did most of it, but nothing to celebrate. I, I am not happy when the rich gets poorer while I'm also getting poor. It's a high, it's not, it's not a cool situation. And anyone who wants to celebrate that, go for it, buddy. But I'm, I think you're morally, it's morally objectable to praise that type of equality. Yeah. I mean, it's also um, just simply not economically productive, I suppose. Um, um, okay. So what, what does this mean then uh, going forward? I mean, it, it definitely revises our understanding of the period uh, under observation here in your paper. But how can this inform um, the conversation going forward on economic inequality? So there is a lot of work. So we're, we're planning on doing expansions on this. We already have some work underway. One of the points we make is that a lot of the rest of the leveling is probably also not explained. So when it said that we could cut the explanation on tax policy by half, we can actually probably cut it again by half mm-hmm. uh, because there's other developments in the United States that have nothing to do with tax policy in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. One of them is regional convergence uh, from the 1940s mm-hmm. to the 1960s, and especially keeps going on afterwards. But Southern states, which were historically quite poor, sometimes half as rich as, as the US average, uh, which means that, like for example, if you took the US average as 100%, uh, Mississippi or Alabama were something like 50 or 60% of the national average, huge differences, gigantic differences, in fact. And starting in the 50s and 60s, these the, the differences started to, uh, to, dis- to disappear gradually, but at a relatively fast pace still. That regional convergence, which has nothing to do with tax policy, it has to do with capital moving from high income states where capital is already getting marginally decreasing returns to, well, rapidly uh, rapidly decreasing marginal returns and they go to the south where the returns are much higher and the returns on capital are much greater so there is a mobility of capital and that's actually explained by very standard stuff that we teach to students in introduction to macroeconomics like it's econ 102 or 103 that we teach them that uh, so very trivial stuff explains the, the lev- a part of the leveling. Another part of the leveling is the pre-civil rights convergence in black to white income. Uh, people have failed to appreciate this until a few years ago, thanks to the work of Leah Platt Bustan, who pointed out that the great migration of African-Americans to, from the Southern states to the Northern states caused an incredible wage convergence for them. Uh, they converge, I, if I'm remembering, I think if you take the, the, the ratio of white to black wages, the relative wage of, of blacks went up by 20 points. There wasn't, it, wasn't, it, was, it didn't mean equality, but there was an equalizing trend, if you right. want. That has nothing to do with policy. In fact, as I point out, it's pre-civil rights. The, the convergence accelerates post-civil rights for some obvious, very obvious reason. Uh, but the fact that it happened when the state was actually obviously determined to hurt African-Americans, to officially discriminate against them, and there was still convergence, 
tells you that there is a much more mundane story, which is that uh, uh, workers were moving to where wages were highest. A uh, very mm-hmm. trivial explanation, if you want, doesn't there isn't much policy implications that you can derive from that, other than let people move from poor, unproductive places to richer hubs of productivity like cities or areas of high technological innovation and let them become workers there and get higher wages than they would otherwise. That in terms of policy is not as appealing as saying you should do this or that taxes. Uh, So the story we tell, uh, Phil and I, uh, the weight goes to, I wouldn't call them mundane, but I do call them mundane sometimes, but I feel each time I do, I'm I'm belittling the importance of of these changes, the regional convergence, the racial convergence, but these are actually much easier to explain. They don't require strong intuition about tax policy, but they also mean that there is very little that tax that policymakers can do about this except remove barriers to migration of capital and remove buyer to migration of people i mean beyond that there isn't very little that they can say yeah so that's actually um a great point that i wanted to close on which is the question of you know to what extent does politics matter for inequality in 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 your understanding here right because it seems like it is very as you say very limited things that can really be actively done i mean i guess the problem is in the US, I, I don't necessarily like to call it inequality as the main issue, but the way that I see it is that you have an extreme, and not just me, of course, but um, that you have a very extreme uh, unequal geography uh, of economic opportunity in the United States increasingly, um, with very vibrant areas in um, certain agglomerated regions versus, yeah, ultimately uh, areas that do not really offer much opportunity anymore right if you say okay well um there was a story of being able to migrate to areas where um uh, wages were higher there there was a a period when people migrated back towards the south but at this point it seems that people should probably be migrating to shenzhen china or something um so so what is there that american policymakers can really do if if anything the thing is is that the things that would probably pack the most heat are probably stuff that is done at the very local level Uh and is hard to coordinate. So I'll give you an example that's relevant to the present time. If you check the accessibility of cities, the reason Mm -hmm. why cities matters is cities are hubs of productivity. Uh, For some magical reason, when you put people into a city, because of networks, because of density, because of the flow of information, because of economies of scales of greater specialization, workers are more productive just because of that. And hence, they command higher wages. When but that's you, also a product of uh, the very specific economy that the United States has created now, right? I mean, there are. I'd be, I'd be careful because the issue is is uh, zoning laws have sure. create the problem where gains in productivities from cities. So say that there is the city becomes much more productive, mm-hmm. and people would want to move there. If you mm-hmm. fix the supply of housing by making it perfectly inelastic, so it can't increase, Mm -hmm. Uh, all the gains of productivity will be capitalized in higher uh, housing values. Uh, But the city will not be more accessible for for people. Uh, There will not be access for new entrants. In fact, the goal of basically zoning laws and stuff like that is to keep out people from the cities. And that means that in the United States, there is something like a spatial misallocation of people 
workers right. are going back to low density areas or not moving, I should say it like this. They're not moving in sufficient degrees to cities given how much, uh, how high the wages in cities are. But we can compare with a few places in the United States that have, uh, so there is some literature that's on, that's peripheral to the conversation here, but useful and should be incorporated in the long run. There's a good literature showing that low zoning areas have had uh, very limited price increases for, for housing, but also high wage increases, but also fast population growth from poor people who migrated there to get higher wages. And when you observe what happens in these cities, they have very different uh, uh, inequality differentials with the rest of the countries. They seem to not grow more unequal because they're offering hubs of opportunities for those at the bottom to escape bad geographic, bad bad geographically concentrated sets of opportunities and they can move to another one where geographically by some magical reason of i say magical but i'm sarcasm yeah. uh on my part it's the the cities are much more productive and they get access to this greater hub of of opportunity greater choice sets and as a result their their living standards go up massively this is however something that the federal government doesn't control, that even state course, governments yeah. don't control that much. It's something that's much more in the purview of, of cities and that is much harder to control. Uh, that being said, uh, policy-wise, uh, again, it goes back to those boxes I was mentioning. There is bad inequality of two types. One of them is those you get by dint of birth. And this is where some government correctives can work. But these are very long in generating fruits. This is, for example, better schools. Mm -hmm. uh, daycare services seem to have an impact. Early, early intervention in childhood seem to have an impact on stuff like that. But these are, A, they take a long time to do, and B, you can backfire them. So, for example, I come from Quebec. Uh, in Quebec, there is universal daycare services and people have looked at the evidence since we started that 1997 and the outcomes are pretty disappointing uh mm. close to 30 years later now not 30 but 25 i think now 25 years later the results are pretty disappointing they're not as cool as people expected them to be <laughs> okay. uh i would say it like that it's close it seems like on some some things wash out others but given the amount of spending that was done on that it wasn't as beneficial the other box of stuff of bad inequality is the things that we do to keep the poor poor. Mm. Uh, this is occupational licensing. This is a, a zoning regulation that prevent them from accessing cities. Uh, this is a regressive forms of taxation where we tax the stuff that the poor consume more. Uh, it's uh, trade tariffs that tend to affect the services that uh, people do. So for example, uh, my friend Diana Thomas out of Creighton University estimated the effect of regulation on product prices, and she basically had index of regulation by sector, and she found that uh, the prices of the goods that were affected by uh, rising levels of, of regulations uh, tended to increase the price of goods that the poor disproportionately consumed, that they, the goods that feature heavily in their consumer baskets much more than uh, the rich are. Uh, so stuff like that is much more removing hurdles in a certain way, removing mm. stuff that reduces the chances of the poor or removing stuff that actually protects the rich. So that would be like, for example, subsidies, monopoly status, legal monopolies. So sometimes firms do get by dint of government, they get like a privileged status. 
that is the kind of stuff that actually is bad inequality. But it's also that weirdly enough, it's they're the ones that are the cheapest to fight. They're the ones that are clearly going to be growth enhancing. They're probably the ones that get the most friction to remove because there's interested parties that do not want these policies to be removed. Uh, if, for example, I'm a doctor, I'm uh, like, for example, sorry, I'm not a doctor, a barber. Uh, mm-hmm. If I'm a barber and there is a light, there's licensing to prevent entry in the barber job, the barber job. Not that for, for those who who know uh, who see, uh, I have no hair and no beard, so <laughs> I don't I'm not exactly in need of a barber. Uh, I'm bald. Or you're so, or visiting the a, barber a lot. I don't know. Or or that or that. <laughs> but uh, if, I, if I was a barber, not being the the barber's client these services, uh, I'm quite happy if I don't have competitors or if competitors have to pay a a high fee to enter the market in the first place. So I'm quite happy with that situation. But what it means is, and I'll fight probably to keep those regulations, but what it means is that somebody who is lower down the ladder actually doesn't get a chance to rise up. And that type of inequality is is clearly detrimental. It's clearly probably the most prevalent one. It's the easiest to conceptually understand that they're they should be removed and mm-hmm. that they would pack some some banks for the bucks. But they're also the ones that get the most political opposition to change. And if policymakers were really interested in that, and maybe I'll be rude a bit here, but they uh, they'd attach themselves a pair of balls and actually take on these these policy issues. Professor Vincent Geloso, thank you so much for being part of the Forum podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UWPoliticalEconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.